Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Good morning. I'm Michelle Martin with your Market View. Asia-Pacific markets are trading mixed this morning, setting aside a session of moderate gains on Wall Street. Tokyo up 0.4%. Sydney is flat and Seoul trading down 0.4%. Joining me now to help break down all the market action is Abhilash Narayan. He's a senior investment strategist at Standard Chartered Private Bank. Good morning, Abhilash. Good morning, Michelle. Welcome back to the show. Let's start our discussion right here in Singapore, Abhilash. I want to ask you a bit of an unusual question first. I'll tell you afterwards why I'm asking, but here we go. What do you think the Singapore exchange, the Singapore stock market, is best known for today amongst institutional investors? Is it REITs, our local banks, something else? Well, I would say it's the combination, right? So uh, if you look at the composition of uh, Straits Times Index, you see two sectors dominate uh, the overall index. The one, uh, the first one is, is banks. Uh, so obviously we have the three big uh, local banks there. Mm-hmm. And we also have a, a huge weightage to property sectors, so both developers as well as REITs. But we know for a fact that you know Singapore is a much more established uh, market as far as REITs are concerned yeah. uh, relative to other uh, regions in uh, other, other markets in Asia. So I would say, yeah, REITs plus financials would be the two main factors that, uh, that institutional uh, investors identify for Singapore. Okay, great overview and interesting because SGX has just reported its earnings and they jumped 13% in the first half of the year as compared with a year earlier. Singapore Exchange netting more than $230 million and the company says this was driven largely by derivatives. Now, we don't often talk about derivatives on this show. It's not a sector that most retail investors look at. But I'm wondering if this is where institutions are focusing their intention. Should retail investors be taking a closer look at derivatives as well, Abilash? Well, I would say it depends, right? Because one thing that we know about derivatives is that they are complex financial products. So while they do offer a certain degree of flexibility, if investors want to expect a certain you know, investment uh, thesis, uh, they do come with higher risk, right? The, the, the potential losses that uh, investors could face by investing in derivatives could be much more and much more opaque as compared to your normal stocks. So I think uh, if, if people want to participate in, in derivative market, it's imperative that uh, the amount of financial education and uh, you know awareness around risk of uh, investing through derivatives should be promoted. Always good to keep in mind. Now, the Singapore Exchange's profits during the first half of the year stand really in stark contrast to those of the Hong Kong Exchange, which is reporting its worst earnings in five years. The Hong Kong Exchange's interim profits fell more than 27%. Abilash, are investors losing interest in Hong Kong-listed stocks? Well, I think it's, it's difficult to say that based on just one quarter of results, right? Now, if you just think about what are the main constituents of Hong Kong Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. around 80% of the companies there, especially by market cap, are companies which are headquartered in mainland China. And in the past quarter, we have seen a greater degree of investor skepticism around Chinese uh, companies given the dynamic COVID-0 policy, the slowdown in growth, and the other issues, especially around property sector. But, you know, given ahead, uh, looking ahead, uh, we think that Chinese stocks and Hong Kong stocks should rebound, given that we think that policymakers will come in with more supportive measures and there could be a bit of catch-up coming through. So, uh, you know, we, we really need to see uh, results for the next few quarters to be able to say whether there is a trend of declining interest uh, from clients in, in Hong Kong stocks. 
Now, the Hong Kong exchange's profits may be falling, but liquidity there is still significantly higher than on the Singapore exchange. So what I'm wondering and what we've heard analysts debate as well, and I'd love to get your view on this, do you think that Hong Kong's challenges represent an opportunity for us here in Singapore? Well, I would say yes and no, right? Because uh, one of the biggest advantages that Hong Kong has as, a, as an equity market is the access to mainland China and the proximity there. And if you think about it, uh, there has been a lot of talk about potential for uh, Chinese companies who are listed in U.S. Uh, could delist uh, from, from U.S. markets because of auditing requirements. Mm-hmm. And there is a possibility that a lot of those companies come back and list in Asia. Now, mm-hmm. Hong Kong would be the first pick. Uh, that's the natural assumption for, for them to relist in Asia. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, if, if uh, Singapore does manage to attract some of those listings, then that could be a, a big positive for Singapore uh, stock markets as well. Lies on those delistings. Now, one last note about the Singapore Exchange. From January the 1st, it will have a new chairman, Ko Bun Hui. Ko has previously served as chairman of NTU, Singtel and SIA Engineering. All right, let's turn to U.S. markets now, where investor sentiment appears to be uncertain, but leaning towards a positive, a mix, mix economic signals. The S&P 500 closed up about a quarter percent overnight. NASDAQ not far behind. The Dow finished flat. Now, two companies that are outperforming are Cisco Systems and Applied Materials. Cisco listeners is the world's largest maker of machines that run the internet. Applied Materials is the biggest maker of machinery that's used to manufacture semiconductors. So both companies have issued bullish sales outlooks. Cisco shares jumped nearly 6% overnight. Applied Materials moving higher in after-hours trade. Abilash, if we take a step back, semiconductors are often seen as a bellwether for the rest of the economy. So what do you make of these projections? Well, uh, if you look at the uh, the guidance from semiconductor companies, I would say it's uh, it's driven by a combination of the economic outlook, but also uh, you know supply chain considerations. So you know what we do, uh, what we have heard in the last six months is that a lot of semiconductor companies are trying to make their their supply chains a lot more robust. Uh, we've, we've seen uh, U.S. government trying to incentivize uh, Taiwanese uh, chip manufacturers to to set up plants in in mainland U.S. to you know make the supply supply chains more, more resilient. So, you know, there is no doubt about the fact that the demand for semiconductors has increased, uh, you know, as we use a lot more electronic devices. So there is a secular tailwind for, for the sector. But I think some of the demand for machinery and equipment is also being driven by the fact that uh, companies and countries want to make their supply chains more uh, resilient and bring some of their infrastructure closer to home. Uh, but yeah, overall, we think that the combination of these factors means that the sector should perform broadly in line, if not modestly outperform the broader market in the next six to 12 months. Also, in the U.S., President Joe Biden recently signed into law a $52 billion U.S. dollar program meant to boost the chip industry and really encourage its move to U.S. soil. China, we saw lashing out at this plan, arguing that it may violate fair trade principles and also warning that the market is slowing down. What do you think? From a market impact perspective, uh, I don't think uh, the recent headlines, uh, especially the, the, the protests from China, are going to change the direction uh, that U.S. policymakers have said. And if you think about it, uh, globally, uh, there is a huge dependence on, on Taiwan uh, for semiconductor chips, uh, especially the high-end chips. And given the recent increase in geopolitical tensions, uh, you know, the move that we have seen by U.S. does not come as a surprise. 
but on at a broader level right uh, what we've seen in the last two le- uh, last two years is that us and china are in a race for technological supremacy and semiconductors are a big part of it so we already have seen china really trying to boost its local semiconductor man- design and manufacturing capabilities and us is just doing the same so you know while we will have ups and downs we think that both these sectors will remain a focus for china and us and that's one of the reasons why we have a, a, a bullish view on chinese uh, uh, hardware and semiconductor manufacturers. Interesting. Let's turn to the US economy now where indications are also mixed. US jobless claims data have fallen for the first time in 3 weeks. A gauge of manufacturing activity in Philadelphia has unexpectedly expanded in August, but home sales, they're down. The six months in a row that these have declined. Abilash, I think the big question on everyone's minds is really, what is the state of the U.S. economy? Is it headed for recession or is it not? Well, uh, if you believe the data, we are already in a technical recession. So U.S. GDP contracted in the first and the second quarter of this year. So that does meet the definition of uh, technical recession. But I think the current cycle in the U.S. is quite unique because historically when we have seen such slowdowns in growth, that has usually been accompanied by a, a rise in uh, jobless uh, claims, a rise in unemployment. But this time around, if you look at U.S. labor market, that seems to be ex- exceptionally strong. Uh, if you look at the unemployment rate, that's close to its record lows. Uh, and that's just complicating the picture for policymakers. Now, overall, you know, if you think about some of the indicators such as uh, home sales, the decline there is not a surprise, given the fact that, you know, uh, interest rates have really gone up quite sharply in the U.S. And we have been hearing for some months that the demand for new homes has been going down because of higher borrowing costs. But all in all, we think that, you know, uh, if even if the U.S. Uh, does go into a recession, which uh, NBR would uh, give a ruling on, it would be a mild one. And to a large degree, we think that, you know, the, the slowdown in growth is priced in. So unless you see a major negative surprise, uh, we think that uh, U.S. economy and U.S. stocks should continue to trudge along. Speaking of possible surprises, uh, CNBC's Jim Cramer argues that companies cannot really plan in muddled economic cycles. The best, he says, they can do is guess. And he says we may see a lot of bad guesses. Uh, What do you think? Well, clearly, the the amount of uncertainty that's there for both investors and companies is is at an uh, elevated level. But, you know, there was a famous quote by Dwight Eisenhower where he said that plans are useless, but planning is essential. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, while the the economic scenario may not play out as as how companies had, had planned, they do make contingency plans for, for slowdown. Then obviously that's something that will improve their resilience uh, should the economy deteriorate more than expected. So, you know, we think uh, there will be uh, a bit more caution from, from uh, U.S. companies when it comes to capital spending, when it comes to hiring plans. But uh, we've already seen some of this come through. And it's always better to be, uh, you know, forewarned when companies give this guidance in advance rather than them having to react at the last minute. So, you know, clearly there are challenges for U.S. and European stocks. And that was one of the reasons why we downgraded global equities to a neutral, uh, you know, earlier in the year. And, you know, unless we see... Uh, uh, an improvement in the economic outlook, uh, we think that, you know, stocks could remain fairly volatile. And that's why we think adding a bit more exposure to bonds at the expense of stocks uh, is maybe a prudent thing to consider for a diversified investor. So neutral on global equities, but what is your overall view right now of U.S. equities? Well, we are neutral on U.S. equities within the global equity context as well. Now, the markets that we like are Asia-Japan equities and U.K. equities. 
Uh, Asia Japan because you know we think the valuations there are cheap. We think that uh, positioning is quite light, and we think that uh, compared to US, where there is a lot of uncertainty around economic outlook, we are a lot more confident about uh, the economic growth outlook for Asia. So obviously in China we do expect growth to pick up in second half of the year. India, which is another large market, is expected to grow above seven percent, uh, you know, per annum. And Indonesia, which just released its budget, uh, is also expected to go, grow at a fairly healthy clip. So we think that you know rather than trying to predict whether the U.S. will fall into a recession or not, it's better to go into markets where there is more certainty about uh, growth and the valuations are not as demanding as they are in U.S. All right, let's bring the discussion to Asia then. Indonesian President Joko Widodo is thinking of introducing an export tax on nickel. It's a big deal because nickel is an important component for batteries and Indonesia is the world's biggest producer of the electric vehicle materials. So if a tax is introduced, Abilash, what could this mean for electric vehicle companies, you know, Tesla, the likes? What could this mean for the sector? At the margin, it would be a negative uh, because the cost of manufacturing would go up. But it's not uh, uh, something that uh, electric car makers are not familiar with, right? So if you look at lithium prices, I was just looking at Bloomberg lithium price index a few days back. Uh, Since end of 2020, lithium prices have gone up almost eight times. Right? And lithium is a big component of the battery manufacturing. Copper, which is a big component for electric cars, uh, electric cars tend to use five times more copper as compared to your traditional combustion engine cars. Copper prices have also been on a tier since early 2020 before you know, the, uh, decline, uh, declining a bit in the past few months. Mm. So electric car makers have already been uh, grappling with rise in input costs. So uh, you know, nickel export tax would be another sort of headwind, but it's something that we think that they would be able to manage. I think for for the sector as a whole, two things really stand out. Mm-hmm. One is that valuations, uh, especially PE ratio, has compressed uh, since start of the year, given that the sector has underperformed uh, year to date. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's less demanding from a valuation perspective. And secondly, we think that there is a growing base uh, of demand. So recently, Ernest and Young did a survey, and based on that, over 50% of people uh, were willing to consider, uh, you know, buying an electric car, and that was obviously driven by, you know, increased uh, reliability of electric cars' range as well as available of charging infrastructure. So we think that on a secular basis, on a long-term basis, uh, electric cars are uh, a sector where uh, there is going to be significant growth, and that's why we we like it as a, as a thematic uh, idea within a diversified portfolio. All right, now. What does this mean for Indonesia? So Widodo is talking about the tax because he wants to move Indonesia up the value chain. So could this work? Could this have a positive impact on Indonesia's economy? Well, uh, in the short run, obviously, the tax will bring in uh, more revenues and, and, that, uh, and those additional revenues uh, will give the government more headroom to, to invest in infrastructure, to invest in, in healthcare, invest in education. So that is the clear positive impact. Whether the tax you know, and the uh, associated policies result in more companies shifting their manufacturing base to Indonesia, I think that's, that's the big question. Because mm. remember, uh, most of the countries in Southeast Asia are trying to attract companies to set up their manufacturing facilities in their countries, especially as uh, companies try to diversify away from from China as far as manufacturing is concerned. So there is a fair bit of competition, but, uh, you know, only time will tell whether Indonesia manages to attract uh, more companies than, than other countries in the region. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of competition, the last time you were on this show back in April, we talked about the streaming media and I'd like to touch on it again. I'm just curious, do you have more than three streaming services, Abilash? 
Yes, I do. In fact, I have four streaming services. <laughs> I thought so. That seems to be the norm these days. Uh, in the U.S., for the first time, streaming media services have enjoyed more viewers than cable and traditional broadcast networks. So it's summer over in the U.S. The trend may not last once more live sports return to the bigger networks. But do you think this could be a watershed moment? What is your take on this sector right now? Uh, from a secular perspective, uh, obviously streaming services have been gaining momentum for the past few years. But I think one thing that has changed in the last few years is that streaming uh, is no longer restricted to uh, you know technology companies or, or upstarts such as Netflix, etc. We are seeing more and more traditional media houses or, or networks launch their own apps. So uh, there are a number of media uh, companies, Disney, HBO, etc., who, who have started their own streaming services. So, you know, one way of looking at it is there is a, a shift in the consumption pattern uh, from a user end, uh, from, you know, viewing stuff on TV versus viewing stuff content on apps. So it's, 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 a, it's a sector which is, bound, which is uh, you know, scheduled to grow, but we will start seeing more and more competition. And from an investor perspective, that may mean that the margins for some of these streaming companies could come under increasing pressure as they try to compete both on prices, but also trying to get the best content on their platforms. So, you know, it's, it's a space where we, we will see winners and losers emerge over the next three to five years. So if you are someone who's looking to invest in the sector, then maybe diversifying your, your investments might be a smart strategy to consider. Great insights there. Before we let you go, I need to check the pulse of the Singapore market. The STI up about 5% since the start of the year, trading around 32.70. Where do you think we could be at year's end, Abilash? Well, that's, that's a very tough question, right? Uh, but, you know, uh, it, it's difficult to give a point forecast, but from a directional perspective, as I mentioned, uh, we, we are positive on uh, Asia X Japan equities. And I think that the same view extends to Singapore stock market as well. Now, if I look at the key drivers, right, uh, we talked about the fact that financials and real estate sector are two big drivers. And if you look at Singapore markets, obviously, we all know that uh, there is a big tailwind as far as property sector is concerned, not only in the rental space, which benefits REITs to a certain degree, but also from, from new home sales. So we think that property sector or the real estate sector in Singapore should continue to do well. And the banking sector, uh, the recent results showed that uh, the banks are on a firm footing. So, you know, we, we would still expect the, the straight science index to end high, uh, the year higher, maybe 5 to 7%, mid-high single digits. But yeah, uh, giving a point forecast is, is quite challenging given how uncertain uh, the, the global economic environment is right now. Uh, we wouldn't expect you to do that, but thank you for charting out the possible direction, Abilash. Great speaking with you. Have a good day ahead. Thank you. Abilash Narayan, Senior Investment Strategist at Standard Chartered Private Bank. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.